night, Stephen spoke briefly. Can you hear me okay? Is that reverberating? Just in my own ears, I guess. I'm hearing it double. Last night, Stephen spoke briefly about the Four Noble Truths and the first teaching that the Buddha ever gave and really the core teaching. If you recall, just briefly, the first truth is that of the unsatisfactory nature of our life. Not just painful, but unsatisfactory. The second truth is that the cause of this, the word is dukkha, that we translate as unsatisfactory, that the core cause of this is the movement of craving in the mind. Cause of suffering or unsatisfactoriness because we crave what is insubstantial, (coughs) ephemeral, not lasting. We crave for happiness where it can't be found. The third truth is that there is an end, a cessation, to this movement of craving, a liberation, freedom, peace. And the fourth truth is the Eightfold Noble Path, or the way that the Buddha laid out for us to develop, to touch more and more deeply the truth of who we are, this truth of freedom. Tonight I want to talk about mainly these first two noble truths. It's said that the Buddha, after his years of practice and his full deep realization, his great wisdom, was at first not so inclined to teach. Said that he was reflecting on this depth of truth that he had realized and thought that this truth is profound and very hard to see. That a person cannot come to it by thinking about it, but only by direct experience. That the wise will understand this, the truth of our being, through only direct experience. But, he continues, this generation, where he was alive at that time, 2,500 years ago, this generation relishes attachment, delights in attachment. So it's hard for them to see this truth. So I guess things haven't changed very much. (laughs) But thinking this, he thought, well, what's the use? I might as well just hang out in the bliss of Nibbana for the rest of my life. He thought he wouldn't be understood. So the legend has it that a Brahma, a being from one of the high Brahma realms, came down and begged the Buddha to teach out of great compassion for the world. And it said that the Buddha used his his all-seeing wisdom to survey the world. And one of the things he saw and what touched his great compassion is that everyone just wants to be happy. 
we all, deeply in our heart, what do we want? We want to be happy. Yet, through our blindness, through not understanding, he saw that people were doing, in their efforts to be happy, doing just the opposite of what would make them happy. That in pursuing happiness, they're doing it in a way that was only bringing more suffering. Out of great compassion, he decided to to teach, to share what he had discovered, and so spent the next 45 years of his life doing that. The truth is hard to see, not because it's somewhere else, not because we have to somehow be different in order to see it, But it's hard to see because we look to the wrong things for happiness. Because we see in an incorrect way. Because we don't look at what's really happening now and so don't see the truth of things. So that's why I want to talk about the first two truths. I love talking about them because the understanding of these, the truth of the unsatisfactoriness and of craving is so liberating. It is the key in to understanding what happiness is, what truth is. When we touch our true nature, in that moment, The truth of who we are beyond body, beyond mind, beyond this duality, sense of me and you, in that moment, craving doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's nothing to crave. And so it's not a problem. Yet paradoxically, what blinds us to touching this truth of who we are is just this movement of craving in our minds, in our hearts. So I feel it's very important, it's vital actually, for us to inquire into this process of craving, to really come to understand it, to see it for what it is, this movement of mind, this cause of suffering. And in inquiring into craving, we also begin to see what leads us into craving in the first place. And that is our not really deeply understanding the truth of dukkha, of the unsatisfactory nature of things. And and our not understanding this truth of the unsatisfactory nature of existence, basically we keep thinking that there's some experience some physical object, some emotional or mental or physical experience that we can have that is going to be ultimately satisfying, that's going to bring us lasting happiness. I mean, we don't put it that way so baldly in our mind, but through our not investigating, that's the way we're acting. And so we keep craving, we keep looking for this satisfaction where it can't be found and we keep suffering. We keep being confused. We keep feeling shut out and separate 
from who we really are, from peace. And I think that's what the Buddha meant when he talked about how everyone wants to be happy, but we keep doing just the opposite, what will only bring us more confusion and suffering. So let's examine these two truths and just a little bit look at how our misunderstanding of these facets of existence continues to bring about confusion and suffering. Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was an Indian wise man, said once that the obstacles to the clear perception of one's true being our desire for pleasure and fear of pain. That's the first two truths in reverse. Fear of pain, desire for pleasure. So this first noble truth, truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness of pain, the unsatisfactoriness of impermanence, that what we love that what we cherish changes, goes away, or we change. When I first started hearing about this, the thought that came was, well, I mean, suffering is no big secret. Why is this this big truth to proclaim? All you have to do is pick up the newspaper any day and read it, you know, talk to five people you meet on the street. It's pretty clear that there's a lot of suffering and unsatisfactoriness in the world. So what's the big secret? But when we really start inquiring into it in our day-to-day life, begin to look at how we're relating to our experiences just on a mundane day-to-day level is quite fascinating to me to continue to see how limited, at least for me, my ability to open to the absolute truth of unsatisfactoriness or suffering is. The tendency to deny and avoid is enormous. So I see why the Buddha proclaimed it. Like to wake us up, start to pay attention to what's really happening. Not to develop a depressive, aversive relationship to life. In fact, it's just the reverse. He's saying, let's look at what's really going on in order to wake us up, in order to open us to the potential of living in truth at this very moment rather than living in denial, rather than living in fear, even if we're not aware of it. So what are some of the ways that we deny? Just a couple of examples. You can find them in your own life. Just go through a day, and we're doing it all the time. But these are kind of real obvious ones. We deny another's pain right in front of us, or deny our own internal pain. Once I was in the hospital and a doctor was doing a procedure on me that was relatively painful, you know, not killer, but relatively painful, and having trouble doing it. 
you know, trying to do it over and over and over. And it was really hurting. And I was pretty on the edge anyway, so I started crying some. And he just looks at me and goes, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. And it's just really interesting. looking at it on another level, and it's the same process, exactly. I notice when I go to India, I was just in India a couple months ago, it's a very painful place. So I pay attention to when I first get into a city and one, especially a Westerner, is accosted by beggars, really not just kind of panhandlers, but really emaciated people lepers, people who are really quite maimed, in in really poor condition, obviously in great need. And it's not just one or two. And if you give any amount of money to one, you can literally be mobbed by a group of them. So I pay attention to how long can I really stay open to this suffering, to connecting with these people. And it's, it's sad, and it's not long. Maybe in 10 minutes, I notice I'm shutting down. I'm kind of averting my eyes. I'm walking past a little more hurriedly. You know, maybe the next day, I I start out and open again. So what's going on? You know, why why do I shut down? Why did the doctor have to deny my obvious pain? (laughs) And really, I feel to open to the immensity of pain in another, the immensity of pain in the world, it triggers off the same immensity of pain in myself. And to the extent that that's too much for me to handle, sometimes it's just we just don't want to acknowledge it, and sometimes it's really overwhelming. Sometimes, for sure, it's just more than we can open to and handle at a time. So I'm not saying we should, we're going to open immediately to all the pain in the world. But just watching that process of shutting down and why, and can I then bring my attention back and feel that pain and know that that's okay. Pain, suffering is part of life in this mind and body on this planet. I don't have to be afraid of it. But the question might come up, like, why do we have to open? to this pain. What's the point? I thought I was doing okay. But really, I know you all don't think you're doing okay, or you wouldn't be here going through this torturous process of sitting and walking and watching everything that arises. I know I wouldn't do it if I thought everything was completely okay. So notice, I notice when I shut down to the beggars, when I shut down to pain, my own and others, what's the effect of that? I no longer make contact. There's no longer a sense of connection. I'm actually shut down to the truth in that moment. Because the thing is, we can't shut down selectively. I'll shut down to pain, but I'll stay open to compassion and joy and appreciation. You know, it doesn't work that way. When I shut off to the truth of this moment, there's disconnection, there's separation. I'm out of touch. And 
one learns that in shutting ourselves off, in denying, whether consciously or unconsciously, the truth of this moment, if the truth happens to be painful, that's actually, in the long run, much more painful and difficult. It leads to much more isolation, a sense of confusion, than actually just acknowledging that this moment is painful and allowing that experience to be as it is. Because what's so amazing is that often that also opens into great compassion and appreciation and joy. But the basic reason is in shutting off and denying what's happening in this moment, there's no way we can touch the truth of who we are in that moment because we're denying it. And so just to begin to notice how and when and why this denial of what's happening takes place. We deny as well the dukkha or the unsatisfactoriness of change. And we all know intellectually everything changes. But I just watch it in my life. For example, I just moved into a new house that was just freshly built. And within no time, noticing the black marks on the wall and the little cracks that are coming as the house begins to settle. And there's this real sense, they did it wrong. They made a mistake. And they didn't do anything wrong. Everything decays. It changes. That's the nature of things. If I can't acknowledge and allow that, I'm going to suffer. Or this culture. I mean, this culture is crazy. We're in one mass denial of the fact that we're aging and dying. We just the other day, <laughs> I don't know how, but several of us fell into this conversation about facelifts and really quite intricate about what's involved in facelifts and what goes on. And we really, at the end of it, one of us said, we must be getting old. We've known each other for a long time and we never had this conversation <laughs> before. <laughs> And, and what's going on in our culture that we need to do this? You know, we need to deny what's happening in front of us. Why is that so scary? And it gives us a, a really skewed view of the world. I know I grew up with a really unconscious skewed view of the world. It was the unspoken assumption. I didn't even recognize it until I was about 25 that in my house that... You don't, you're supposed to be healthy, you're supposed to be happy, you're not supposed to have a lot of emotional mood swings, and you know, it's if you're unhappy, well, don't be sad, don't be sad, come on, smile. And so, the unspoken assumption was there's something really wrong with me if having, as I did, quite uh, a blessed life, I could still feel miserable and discontent, you know, just maybe there's something wrong with me as a person led to a lot of confusion and frustration and self-blame and self-judgment. So that's why, to me, this teaching of this first noble truth, the fact that there is unsatisfactoriness inherent in our existence, came not as a depressing thing, but as a huge relief. It was like, oh, right. It acknowledged my experience. I didn't feel so crazy anymore. 
finally an explanation of what's really going on. Because it's not just talking about the obvious painful or changing situations, which God knows that's enough, and we still manage to hide from it at times, but also beginning, help me begin to tune into the kind of unsatisfactory nature of experiences on a more subtle level. So I'll tell you a little, a little story that could be almost any experience, but it's when I really woke up to it and realized why I felt so crazy. I thought I should be happy and wasn't. There was one fall, a friend and I, I was teaching the three-month course in Massachusetts, and we belonged to a health club where we would go to go swimming and work out and stuff. And we were really tired. It had been a long week, and we decided to go swimming to refresh ourselves and got really happy at the idea. So I'll describe blow by blow what actually happens rather than what I thought was happening. We get in the car. We drive for half an hour. Get there. It's really cold. Get out and go in. Went into the dressing room, and they they keep it quite chilly, and I'm very susceptible to cold. So I was freezing getting into my bathing suit took a shower, walked out in the pool, I was even more freezing, got into the water, it's not real warm, so I was quite uncomfortable and shivering, and so I started swimming really fast, and after about two laps, I got warm, and for about one lap, I was really enjoying it, and then my arms started to hurt, and it just started to be boring, and I thought, well, I can't wait to get in the sauna. So I dragged myself through a couple more laps, got out, cold again, went into the sauna, Relax and thought, this feels great. And it felt great for about five minutes. And then the board started to really hurt my back. And then I got really sweaty and kind of dizzy and a headache. So then I'll go out. So I went out. It was really cold. I sat there. I cooled off. Oh, now I'm cold. I'm going to go back in the sauna. I went in the sauna. It felt good for about two minutes. And then, again, I started to sweat, and I got dizzy, and I went out, took a shower. It was cold. I got dressed. I went upstairs, met my friend. He was a man, so he'd been in the men's room. And he said, boy, that was great. (laughs) It's a typical experience. And I would wonder, how come I don't feel really incredibly good now? Of course, again, you might say, well, who wants to look this closely? It's really depressing. And I want to say again, it's not. It's not depressing at all. It's quite the reverse. Again, it's quite liberating. It's seeing what's actually going on. And it allows for much more appreciation of what's actually happening when I'm not trying to twist the experience to meet some idea I have of how good it ought to feel, how it ought to be it. It should make me happy for good. The Buddha said at one point that I teach one thing only, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. This beginning to see on this more subtle level, the unsatisfactory parts of our experience serves as a way to wake us up. It's like we begin to really pay attention. We begin to come back into the present moment. And when we're paying attention and alive and present, that's when we open to the truth of who we are. Not when we're trying to twist our experience to meet some 
idea or expectation. A real simple example from retreat, just from talking to a few people here. You might find that you sometimes go through the day always leaning into the next experience. You come to the sitting, you sit down, and within five minutes, I've got this, this, forget this one, but I can't wait till I get to the walking. You get out to the walking, and after 10 minutes, it's like, oh, God, this is driving me crazy, but soon it'll be lunch. <laughs> and you get to lunch, and it's okay, but it's not really not quite doing it for you, but you think about your nap. And it just kind of goes like that, you know, leaning into the next thing, leaning into the next thing. What's going on? That movement in itself is quite unsatisfying. It's really quite a suffering experience to always be waiting for the next thing because this one isn't doing it. That suffering in itself can wake us up, come back. What's going on right now? And you'll almost always see that when we bring our full attentive being into this moment, almost always there'll be something unpleasant that's happening right now. I don't mean every moment there's something unpleasant. I mean when you find yourself leaning into and wanting the experience to be different and you come back, there's almost always something unpleasant. Maybe something just really mildly unpleasant. A slight unpleasant sensation in the knee, a little bit of boredom, a little bit of restlessness that's going unrecognized. Somehow the sitting just isn't meeting our expectations of what we want to be happening. And our conditioning is so strong to avoid, to deny the unpleasant, that when we're not aware of tuning into that, what happens is we just immediately start leaning into wanting the experience to be different, looking forward to the next thing. And when we look at it, the suffering that comes about from this moving out of our present moment's experience is often so much more, so much stronger than if we just opened into the fact of restlessness. Okay, there's restlessness. It's unpleasant. And that's okay. It's not such a big deal. So we see in looking at an experience, just a simple experience like this, through bringing attention, mindfulness, to the unpleasantness, we see in operation the second truth, that the cause of the real suffering in that experience isn't the unpleasant twinge in the knee or the restlessness per se, it's the craving, this leaning forward, wanting the experience to be different, to be better, looking for something to be always pleasant, as if that's going to bring us happiness. This movement of craving is the real Suffering. It's the real blinding factor in our experience. It's born of denial of unsatisfactory or unpleasant experience, born of denial of the fact that things change, that everything changes. By themselves, Neither pleasure nor pain enlighten. Only understanding does. So can we bring our mindful attention to this movement of craving in order to come to understand it, to come to be free 
of this misperception that happiness will come about through craving. When we talk about craving or desire, I just want to clarify a, a language thing. The, in Pali, the language that these Buddhist uh, texts are written in, there's three different words that in English tend to all be translated as desire. So what I'm talking about, this movement of craving, is a word that literally translates into English more as thirst. It's like when you're really this thirst for something, for sense experience, for an idea, for a pleasant sensation, for anything. Just this craving that pulls you out of yourself. There's also the desire that's simply knowing that you're hungry and you need to eat, that you're sleepy and you need to sleep, just taking care of the basic facts of our existence without this thirsting in the mind. That's not what we're talking about. And there's also a type that's translated as desire. There's really kind of the desire for freedom, for understanding, maybe what brings us to this practice, to our spiritual path. And that can actually be quite helpful. So in talking about craving as the cause of suffering, I'm talking about this energy, this thirsting for experience, for things to be different. So how can we explore how does craving arise in a moment? Because it's, as with any experience, something that arises due to conditions, it lasts, it passes away. It's not permanent. It's not something that's always lurking in our experience. It comes and goes. And we can come to understand that. In all of our field of experience, there's only six possible types of sense objects, six types of things to crave. It really reduces it you know, to a, a minimum when we look at it this way. You know, there's, there's sight objects, sounds, tastes, smells, touch, sensory experience, and mental experience. And that's it. It's all just ramifications of that, that we kind of prettify up and make, make more complex. So these experiences, these different sense experiences, are arising and passing as we sit, as we walk, as we move through the day, coming and going quite rapidly as we begin to notice. And when there's an object, a sense object, for example, a sight, comes together with a sense organ, the eye, and there's consciousness of that, called sight consciousness, that's what we call contact in that moment of those three coming together. In that moment of contact, there is, as Steve talked about last night, a feeling arises. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So say there's a smell and it's pleasant. And from that pleasantness, craving can quite naturally arrive, just this movement towards that pleasantness. With mindfulness, we can be quite aware of this whole process, seeing it quite clearly, 
and it doesn't really go any further. There's not a lot of proliferation about it. It's no big deal. It's not a lot of suffering. It doesn't really take us away from this moment. But when we're not aware of it, and it happens quite quickly, the craving strengthens. Now there's a smell, it's pleasant, you start thinking about how hungry you are, you imagine pancakes, you start thinking about what you'd like to have for lunch, you start thinking about your ideal breakfast. It gets really complicated. The craving, all the thoughts and associations start proliferating and you end up in this really solid fixation on something. Suddenly the present experience, just sitting and being with the breath, which a minute ago was very peaceful and calm, is not okay. It's really unsatisfying. Yet what is interesting is when we don't really inquire into this process, you know, we tend to kind of take it for granted, there's something about this craving for the pancakes, for example, that when we don't look at it, somehow we, there's something we kind of like about it. Have you ever noticed that? The Buddha, in talking about when he's describing this truth of craving, he says at one point, just this craving accompanied with delight finds pleasure or satisfaction now here and now there. Somehow, when unexamined, we kind of like to crave. We think it's pleasant somehow. And so we don't recognize the danger of what's actually happening. You know? And what's actually happening is the craving is blinding us to the truth of this moment. So, for example, that craving for food, the extended food fantasy, you know, it seems kind of pleasant. And I know so many times, you know, we're sitting and it's, it's really hard to pull back from a fantasy because it really, it feels nice. We think it's really enjoyable. But what's the effect? Pay attention to what the effect is when something finally does snap us out of it. We wake up and here we are still sitting here. Oh no, 15 more minutes to go. It's unpleasant. We're much more out of touch. The breath seems really dull. Our sensation here is just hard to get in touch with. We're, we're, we're much more discontented than ever. We go to lunch, and instead of blueberry pancakes, there's lentils and steamed vegetables, which we normally love. But because we had something else in mind, we're really disgruntled and dissatisfied with what's actually there. Much more out of touch, unable to appreciate what's actually happening in this moment. This is what craving does. It distorts our perception, our perception of what is craved and of everything else. There's a saying that when a pickpocket meets a saint, the pickpocket only sees the saint's pockets. Craving distorts our perception. We can't appreciate what's really happening. So our mindfulness practice is not to condemn craving or ourselves, not to judge, but to begin to see this process clearly, to begin to understand it, and through understanding to come to liberation from it. Krishnamurti said, unless the ways of desire are understood, illusion is inevitable. 
So let's investigate together for a moment. What is craving? How do we actually experience this movement of craving, of grasping? So we're sitting, for example, with the breath. Experience after experience arises. We noted it passed. There's the breath. There's hearing. We note it. There's a sensation. We note it. It diminishes. There's a sound. We note it. It diminishes. No big deal. Then suddenly, one experience is sort of isolated and grasped onto as it, ah, this one is it. This one is really important. For instance, the sound. What does it feel like just in that moment, this movement of craving? I personally experience it almost as a physical sensation, as if somewhere inside there's a movement of leaning forward and tightening, grabbing onto that sound. It feels unpleasant, and I feel unbalanced. Whereas before, there was a calm, clear seeing. Suddenly, the inner experience feels unbalanced. And then comes a stronger identification with with the wanting, all this proliferation, these constructions, explanations, stronger desires, self-image judgment. Everything gets stronger and more complicated and much more unpleasant. So, for example, there's a sound, movement of craving, really grasping onto it. Oh, that's a bird outside. That's so beautiful. I'd love to go outside and see that bird. And it just gets stronger, and pretty soon it's really hard to sit still. The sense of the hall is dark. It's dank in here. It's really depressing. It's so beautiful and spacious outside. It's really strange to be in such a beautiful environment and just be sitting here inside in the dark. I should go out and appreciate the bird. Oh, what's the matter with me? I came here to meditate and I'm just using this as an excuse and it gets into self-judgment. Really solid sense of me and other. It's a lot of suffering. And if at some point we actually leap up and run out of here, ostensibly to go see the bird, if you're paying attention, you'll see We're really leaping out of here so that that feeling of craving will come to an end. Because it's so unpleasant, we act on the craving basically so we don't have to feel the experience of craving itself. That's what happens when we get the object that we're craving, to end that uncomfortable state. So notice when this experience of craving comes up. It probably will come up sometime before the rest of the night is over. Our perception is distorted. Our mind is unbalanced. It's kind of wavering. It's unsteady. We can't really see what's clearly happening. I'll give an example. The other day, I was with a friend, and craving got triggered off. Someone mentioned the word chocolate milkshake. Now, I had been perfectly happy the moment before that, peacefully sitting in the sun. But someone said chocolate milkshake and then mentioned a place to go get them. I know this isn't fair to mention to you guys as yogis, (laughs) so I'll just say the end now, which is that the place was closed and we never got it. So you've got nothing to envy. But... So craving got established, and we're sitting around talking for 15 more minutes. I was getting more and more uncomfortable. I was no longer happy sitting here. I had to get out and go get a chocolate milkshake. 
So that movement of that unpleasantness drove me and the friend into the car. And we're driving, the place is closed, real disappointment, decide to go down the whole strip of Yucca Valley looking. So how craving one way it distorts our perception. You know how when you really want something, you twist around what you see till it fits what you're wanting, even though that's not what's there at all. So we're driving, and my friend was like trying to read all the signs. And he goes, oh, look, yogurt cup, yogurt cup, the name of the store. I looked over, it said urgent care. It was like a little hospital. <laughs> 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 this is what happens. <laughs> so we distort our perceptions. We can't appreciate what's in the moment, which is I was quite happily appreciating sitting in the sun until this craving arose. When we're with a strong craving and not mindful of it, which clearly I wasn't, we don't have clear judgment, you know, like driven to end the craving, do anything to get rid of this feeling, hop in the car and drive around all day, you know, just not have to feel craving. And a third way that the movement of craving distorts our experience is that, again, that taking us out of what is true, of being able to be present in the moment, impossible to know and experience our basic interconnectedness, the ultimate unity, perfection of what is in this moment. Because when one thing is isolated and grasped onto, There's an immediate separation of that and everything else, of me and what I want out there to make me happy. We become lost in the experience of duality. Again, a simple retreat example. I know James mentioned the other morning uh, about this, this phenomenon of Vipassana romance, someone that you know nothing about, that you're just incredibly drawn to, the object of a lot of craving in the mind. So imagine that you're doing walking meditation very carefully, pretty calm, very peaceful, feeling the sensations, just very present. And suddenly there's a sight. We recognize that sight as the object of our Vipassana romance and strong craving arises, leading to a whole series of thoughts. We're not mindful of it, obviously. The craving gets stronger, culminates in this really strong grasping. I I need to go talk to that person. How am I ever going to make it through the rest of the retreat? In that moment, if you were just to stop and notice what was happening, how aware are you? How connected are you with the actuality of your experience? How aware are you of others, of the surroundings, of the beauty of the desert, the wind on your face? How aware are you of the bare sensations of the walking? Not much. The mind is locked onto this object. And there's a strong sense of separation. I need that. And in that, there's no peace. In that, there's no ability to appreciate what's actually present. And in fact, this strong separation extends to everything else because other people just become objects in the way of 
gratifying our craving, you know, rather than a sense of our basic unity. And contrast this experience, which is actually quite unpleasant and very separating, with the same experience of walking. Again, just a quiet mind in touch with the sensations of lifting, moving, placing, occasionally noting hearing, the wind on your face. No big deal. Nothing special going on. But often, and you notice those times when you feel so exquisitely alive, the perception is really quite clear. And some walking meditations for me are just like the happiest moments of my life. And what was happening? Nothing special, except that the mind was at peace. There was no grasping, no aversion. The ability to be totally present with just what is, with a real clarity of perception. We can only know and appreciate what's true, what's present, when the mind is not clouded by grasping. This, this completeness in the moment, this peace of non-grasping becomes less rare as we continue to practice, as we continue to wake up and bring our mindfulness, our awareness to what's happening right now, no matter what that is. Through this power of mindfulness, this waking up, the underlying tendency of the mind to grasp at the pleasant begins to weaken, to fade. And as you sit, as you walk, it may not seem like much when there's a moment of craving, grasping arises at, say, the idea of wanting a sitting to be a certain way. And you're really mindful of that noting the craving, it weakens, it dissipates, nothing really happens, it goes away, and again, you're calm and present in the moment. It doesn't feel like any big deal, because we're kind of looking for some big lights to go off. But actually, this is a big deal, because in this moment, this is a movement out of blindness and distortion into clarity and freedom. And this is really what our practice is all about. There is no lasting sense pleasure, opinion, view, no solid thing that is I that is going to make us lastingly happy. And as long as we're looking for that, so long we'll be lost in craving, and cycling around and around and around. But the more that we're able to open to, acknowledge whatever is here in this moment, pleasant, unpleasant, painful, beautiful, the more that we can see the movement of craving and not need to act on it, not get lost in all the proliferation, come back and just open to what's true here and now the more our potential for living in the truth of who we really are 
the more that potential becomes activated. Suzuki Roshi said once that renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. And with that, there's the potential for great appreciation and joy and compassion, appreciation of what's beautiful, and it's really okay that they go away. We know that's not the true nature of peace true nature of who we are. So one of the helpful qualities of a retreat, and this is really exciting, is that we get to experience this process of craving and grasping without being so driven by it. Because in, in our lives, as I said, it's so unpleasant that we just jump to act on the craving to get rid of feeling it. And in most cases, there's so many potential things to crave, sense objects, mind objects, views and opinions, that we can just keep moving from one to the other and it kind of hides the fact that the real suffering is coming from this process of chasing after something to make us happy. So here we've really limited all of that. And so the cravings will still come up. Maybe instead of for a sob, it's for two apples at tea time. But it's the same process. But because we've so limited activities, you're sitting here and craving comes up, and there's not really too much you can do about it. But sit and come back and feel what it feels like, the experience of craving, of grasping. It's not pleasant, and that's a lot of the reason we think it's, it's so hard to be here, because we're sitting here lost in craving or aversion, wanting things to be different. But it's a rare opportunity, because when we can just sit, become mindful of the experience of craving, experience that it's unpleasant, we're unbalanced, and it's okay. We don't have to be driven to act every time a movement of craving arises in our experience. We don't have to keep running just to avoid the experience of craving. We sit here, we feel it, and then you see it comes up and it just kind of plops down. It's no big deal. It's not so fearful. This is really what can allow us to become free of this cycle of craving and fear can allow us to open to the truth of the moment. So really all craving, all grasping is bondage. It's bondage because it distorts our perception and because it blinds us to what is true. Craving distracts us from the true nature of who we are. We get lost in trying to fulfill the objects of craving. We get taken away from the ability to open to the truth of who we are, which is always here and now. 
And when we're craving, we're always looking somewhere else. But through our mindfulness, through this power of simply bringing our full, non-judging, non-violent attention to what's happening here and now, the possibility of understanding this process and so understanding who we are arises. And through understanding, it is possible for this seemingly endless search for gratification to come to an end right now, in this moment, not 10 years down the road, but right in this moment of clear seeing. Nisargadatta Maharaj, I just want to end with two quotations. It's from Nisargadatta. Nothing physical or mental can give you freedom. You are free once you understand that your bondage is of your own making and you cease forging the chains that bind you. So that's what our practice is about, seeing and understanding. Thich Nhat Hanh. Meditation is not evasion. It is a serene encounter with reality. So that's what we're doing, serenely encountering reality with our mindfulness in order to understand who we are. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.